The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, is uh, with me. He has so many things on his desk uh, to deal with. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he must be boggled every morning when he arrives in. But there's something new on his desk, and that is the notion that pharmacists might be able to do more for us uh, than they are currently allowed to do. Minister, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, there's going to be a task force. Now, I'm kind of sick and tired of commissions for this and task force for that and the other. What exactly have you got planned? Ultimately, what I want is for pharmacists to be able to do a lot more for patients than, they, than they're currently allowed to do. They're capable of doing a lot more. These are highly trained professionals, experts in medicine. They have an appetite to do a lot more. And essentially what we want them doing is uh, being able to prescribe in certain situations, uh, provide over-the-counter medicines to people with medical cards without the person having to go to the GP, do polypharmacy reviews, so helping doctors where patients are on a lot of different medications. And really what we're looking at is uh, taking pressure off the GPs, utilising pharmacists to the very best of their abilities and their licence So it'll be quicker for patients, for people. It'll be cheaper for people. And remember, uh, pharmacists are open. A lot of pharmacists are open. They're a lot longer. They're available at the weekend. Some on Sundays, yeah. Exactly. So it's a a big win, first and foremost, for people. It's a win for pharmacists. This is something they want to do. They're able to do. And it's a win for GPs because we know that the GPs are under huge pressure. And this is going to take some of the pressure off the GPs. Now, I can understand some of those tasks are quite uh, vital and absolutely tailor-made for the pharmacist. For example, that polydrug use. So somebody comes in with a number of prescriptions for a number of different things. The pharmacist, that's what they do. They, they look at medicines and the effectiveness of them. And they might say, hang on a second. Uh, this person is on all these meds. Do they really need all these meds? They've been on them for maybe 20 years. No one's ever reviewed their meds. They just kept getting uh, reviewed. Uh, That's one thing. But prescribing, how might a pharmacist prescribe and in what situation? In a few different situations. So uh, one of the things we, we want this task force to do is to look at extending repeat prescriptions. At a very simple level, imagine someone who has asthma and their yeah. prescription has expired for their inhaler, but they can't get to a GP. And maybe they don't, they don't need to get to a GP. So if we have very specialised training for pharmacists, they'll be able to go into their pharmacist, do a consultation with the pharmacist, and the pharmacist can say, well, well, I can write a prescription to extend this. Another one is what we call minor ailments. This is where things like um, eye infections, skin infections, m- mild digestive issues... Uh, conjunctivitis was an example that one pharmacist gave me to say, look, it's now I'm not a clinician and we'll see what the expert group comes back with. But the example this pharmacist gave was he said, look, conjunctivitis is something that a pharmacist with extra training and with the right regulations in place can can see, can say, yeah. this is what you need, can prescribe it for you. You don't need to go to the GP. The GPs are under huge pressure. You don't need to to have the cost and the time of going to the GP. And maybe, you know, maybe it's nine o'clock on a Friday night or maybe it's a Saturday or a Sunday when you might be able to get to a pharmacist much more easily than a GP. Now, uh, they already can uh, presumably offer generics as opposed to the the branded uh, medicines. Um, Would they be in a position to offer alternatives? For example, in um, blood pressure meds, you know, the beta blockers and so on, there might be different formulations 
uh, all designed to do the same thing, but maybe t- taken in different doses and maybe contraindicated for co-use with other medicines. Would they be able to do things like that? That's right, yeah. So what they what they call it is a, a medicine shortage protocol. So we see these lists that come out from the agency, from the HPRA on a regular basis saying, just as you've said, you know, there are shortages in the following medicines or in the following doses. Um, but in nearly all cases, there are other doses available. There's other medicines that can be substituted. So we're going to put in legislation and a protocol whereby the pharmacist can do exactly as you've said. Say, so look, this isn't available, but 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 the following, the following mm-hmm. is. One of the issues with uh, GPs, they're so uh, inundated with work and they're put to the pin of their collars just to get through their lists every day, um, is that maybe they don't have time to read up on all the latest drug availability, the side effects and so on, and they just fall back on the old reliables. It's what they've always prescribed for this, that and the other. I mean, what guarantee is there that pharmacists won't you know, just fall back on the old reliables and won't keep up to speed. Because once you get your pharmacy degree, that's it. Hmm. I mean, well, what forces them to, to keep up to speed? Well, they, they do a lot of continuous professional development. But or, isn't that kind of voluntary? Already it is voluntary. And that's something we're certainly looking at is uh, is ongoing continuous professional development. But this is quite a significant move now to have pharmacists prescribing. It does happen in other countries. Uh, we've had nurses prescribing in Ireland for many years, but again, once they get very specialist training and within the scope of their work, what we'll have here is a very significant additional training, specialist training, a regulatory framework in place. We're working very closely with the regulator on this. And the task force that we've put together uh, is a very serious group of people. So we we have uh, experts in medicines, experts in pharmacology, experts in medicine safety. We have the GPs represented through their professional body, the Irish College of General Practitioners. We have the pharmacy regulator on board. So we're going to do this uh, in, in line with additional regulation, additional training, additional oversight. And we have to remember that pharmacists, like doctors or like nurses, they are highly trained clinical professionals uh, and and they're trusted. You know, okay. we go into our pharmacist, we say, look, this is wrong with me or that's wrong with me. What do you think? The, a pharmacist will already give us advice on non-prescription medicines. What this is going to do is, is within an appropriate framework, move that on to yeah. some prescription. Now, that means, I presume, that uh, all patients, kind of public or private, have to be linked up to a particular pharmacy. Otherwise, people can go to pharmacy one, get something prescribed, uh, go to pharmacy two, get the same thing prescribed and so on, uh, and maybe end up with uh, a toxic potential uh, overdose of pills available to them or contribute to shortages. I mean, just inappropriate prescribing. How will you make sure that people don't go shopping around to get more than their share? These are exactly the things that the expert group is going to look at. Uh, There are different options they can look at. One is that, as you say, there is a direct link to the patient's GP and th- these things can be flagged on the systems. We know that there's there's close relationships between a lot of GPs and pharmacies. Others are, um, you can have IT systems whereby the, you know, the pharmacies can, can view patient by patient. But essentially, these are exactly what the expert group is going to come back and flag with me. There's another area we want the group to look at as well, which is more advanced prescribing. Now, this would only be done with the pharmacist as part of a multidisciplinary team. We've talked about the minor ailments. We've talked about repeat prescriptions. We've talked about substituting medicines. There are three. The fourth is 
where there is more advanced care as part of a multidisciplinary team that the pharmacist could also prescribe. Again, with significant additional specialist training, regulation, governance and oversight. What about legal responsibility? If something goes wrong, um, what happens? Well, we have very significant governance regulations in place in terms of GPs, in terms of nurses who prescribe. So we, we, we will look at exactly that uh, in place as well. Now, we talked about medicine shortages and uh, the pharmacists are always saying that the reason we have the shortage of medicines is that the government is not paying enough. The HSE is not paying enough for these key medicines and the manufacturers find other destinations for them where they can make more money. This government has invested a very significant amount of money in new medicines. I think the figure is about €100 million in the lifetime of this government. It's led to a lot of new medicines being authorised, a lot of these so-called... These are very expensive medicines and that's fair enough. You Mm. can make life a lot easier for people with cystic fibrosis and so on. But the commoner guard medicines that are in short supply, the pharmacists are saying this is because we don't pay enough to the manufacturers via the wholesalers to make it worth their while importing them into Ireland? I I wouldn't accept that. I I think what we have is, unfortunately, the agency, the HPRA that lists the medicine shortages, uh, does not also list the substitutes that are available. I've asked for this to be done several times. I, I, I want to see it happen because what happens is the HPRA has a long list and it says these are the medicines that are in short supply. And that gets reported. Mm. What doesn't get reported is the bit that the HPRA has yet to say, which is, by the way, there are substitutes and there are different volumes and different applications available. And we hear the experts come on from the HPA, uh, HPRA and uh, explain this. Ireland does well in terms of medicines. Now, we are dealing with issues in terms of Brexit. Uh, we, have, we have recently lost the ability to uh, package the medicines for both the UK and the Irish market. We're now the only English-speaking uh, uh, well, country in the in the EU, and so that that is presenting some difficulties. But we are dealing with that. Um, one of the pharmacists, Sheena Mitchell, says uh, CPD—that's continuous professional development—is mandatory for all pharmacists. It is not optional. Now, there were some uh, figures that came out today, which is uh, about the. Uh, targets for A&E. There was a target, I think, for um, maybe 236 patients on trolleys uh, set out for the year, but the actual figure in January was 352, in February is 326. Have things improved at all? Things are stabilising. There's been an awful lot of work done. We knew before COVID arrived that the emergency departments were under trouble, uh, were, were in trouble. We saw this annual surge uh, wintertime. We saw it again for a number of days last winter. It's happening here. It's happening in the UK. It's happening around Europe. Uh, And it is part of a post-COVID additional wave of people coming in. And on top of that, we have uh, a growing population. We have an ageing population. So we're seeing the number of presentations into emergency departments go up. In response to that, we've been doing a lot of things. We've been adding additional resources into the emergency departments. We've been investing heavily in the National Ambulance Service. We've been investing heavily in general practice and in community services to give people options other than coming into emergency departments. Now, I've been working very closely with the chief executive of the HSE, Bernard Gloucester, Gloucester to, to move from a largely five-day-a-week hospital service to a seven-day-a-week hospital service. Wasn't that always daft? 
Well, it's well. You know, certainly... People don't get sick um, five days a week and not get sick two days a week. That's right. And what we see is we see uh, Saturday mornings is the lowest number of people on trolleys because the, the hospital gets cleared out in the, the rounds on a Friday. People come in on a Saturday, people come in on a Sunday, and then we see the peak on a Monday or a Tuesday. And we've seen this week after week, mm. year after year. So that's what one of the things we're looking to uh to, to end, really. The new consultant contract is part of that. Um, we'll have to negotiate with health and social care professionals in terms of also moving to seven days a week. It was implemented very successfully over the last number of bank holidays and mm. it worked very well. We didn't see a repeat of what we Does saw. Does it require a massive year. negotiation, though, to, to get seven-day working uh, right throughout the year? And that includes at times like uh, Christmas. You know, there's no reason why the, the hospital should be depersonnelled at Christmas. A lot of that is already done. So one of the one of the pillars for this is the consultant contract. Uh, nurses, as your listeners will know, are already rostered 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The community uh, has typically been five days a week, community services. The hospitals can't do this on their own. And health and social care professionals, by and large, tended, tended to be rostered five days a week. So there is a negotiation required there. Progress is being made. Let's take Limerick, which we talk about uh, an awful lot. They've reformed. Uh, they are now moving their rosters to six and seven days a week. Uh, we're putting a lot more beds in place. There's about 100 have already gone in. We're building up community services. We've put in uh, new protocols for the ambulances, for uh, medical assessment units. And what we're seeing is it's nowhere near finished. But what we're seeing is it's beginning to stabilise. So, for example, year to date, there are 20% less people on trolleys in Limerick than there were in 2019. So that's the, the last right. year we can really um, compare there, it to. There are other things uh, that are uh, shocking. Uh, there's the case of Emily in a HSE-run nursing home, uh, a, an older person who was actually sexually assaulted by someone working there. And other people had made complaints and they were ignored. This person was a dangerous individual, finally uh, was prosecuted. How can something like that go on in, in a, a HSE-run establishment? No, there, there is no excuse for what happened. And it was only thanks to the bravery of Emily in reporting this vile uh, act um, that the man was But was, it seems the was, culture was in there was other people did complain, but they were regarded as being delusional because of their age or demented in, in some way, not treated seriously. The, the safeguarding protocols when it came to that nursing home and when it came to that perpetrator failed. What happened was was completely unacceptable. I know the staff in the nursing home themselves are are, are deeply upset about it. Um, the chief executive of HSC has brought in a safeguarding expert from Northern Ireland. There will be additional protocols uh, put in place. There has already been a lot done uh, since these acts uh, took place. What happened should not have happened and it, it shouldn't and it can't happen mm. in any institution, be it state-run or private-run. Um, the other scandal that's ongoing is the National Children's Hospital. You and I have spoken about this many, many, many times and the disaster is continuing to unfold. I am deeply frustrated uh, with the ongoing delays. I'm deeply frustrated with the amount of claims that the contractor is putting in putting in place. The board is working night and day. I met the chair of the board last week. Uh, I met the management team of the board uh, the, the, the previous week. A lot of things are similar to 2019. A lot of the issues we've discussed are similar. Uh, however, three things are different. One is COVID. And COVID did impact on the time because the construction activity was paused for a, for a, a fair amount of time. 
The second is the war in Ukraine has very significantly increased building costs. And that is no, that is nobody's f- fault in Ireland. That's not the contractor's fault. That is something that has to be dealt with. The third thing that has changed is that we have resourced the board to uh, dispute these claims. So as you'll be aware, and you've covered previously, Pat, the contractor has submitted claims to the tune of around 760 million euro. The board is disputing those claims. It's disputing them through the resolution mechanisms in place. It's disputing them through the courts. So far, of the 760 million, 12 million has been awarded to the contractor. Now, it doesn't mean more won't be, more will be, because all of the claims haven't been adjudicated on. The board is working very hard on two fronts. To minimise the exposure to the state financially to the claims being put in by the contractor and to get this hospital open for children as quickly as possible. Because Early when 2025 is, is the, the latest estimate. Well, the, the, as the Taoiseach said recently enough, we're looking at this point at uh, the end of next year. It could well go into 2025, but we need the hospital open because it is going to be a game changer. And essentially, Pat, we're now focused on the last 10%. The hospital is 89-90% complete. There's 10% left. Then it needs to be handed over to Children's Health Ireland and they need to finish the commissioning mm. and we need to get the we need to get the hospital. And no matter what you do, it's still in the wrong place. Well, look, it, it is where it is, right? It will be a world-class <laughs> facility. We are. <laughs> um it, it will make it will make a big difference. Um but the focus has got to be on cost and critically on getting it open and getting children in there. Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.